Oh. All right. Um, thank you, Rochelle. So that's new. That's Rachel's new name. Um, I renamed her. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, we doing okay? There's <laughs> a party out there. Okay. Um, <laughs> nothing changes, Bethany and Becca. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the pastor at Reform University Fellowship. Reform University Fellowship is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus and you all, whoever you are and wherever you are. Um, and what that means is that REF isn't meant to be a for one kind of person. It's not meant to be a place for one kind of person. It's meant to be a place for every kind of person. We want anyone from any scene on campus to feel welcome here, and we want anyone from any personal background to feel welcome here. And that includes wherever you are with Jesus and Christianity. Um, and so whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, a believer or a spiritual skeptic, we're really glad you're here, um, and we're glad that you can uh, explore Christianity with us too. So finally, um, this time of year especially, I want to thank you all for coming if you're new, especially. Um, thanks for taking the time and the risk on that front. Okay, this semester, in large group, we've been looking at the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible, both historically and in the order in which the books are arranged. Uh, basically, the book of Genesis tells foundation stories, stories about humanity, stories about God, what was right, what went wrong, and how God is mending everything, all things. And we're really just taking a snippet out of Genesis. We're looking at chapters 12 through 25 to look at the lives of Abraham and Sarah. Um, and I've kind of said that these stories are foundational, uh, so this pretty much every week, that they're foundational because they're, they're at the heart of three of the five major world religions in the world. Uh, all three monotheisms, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, claim Abraham and Sarah as father and mother of their faiths. And so it's worth looking at just to be a world citizen or a, a citizen of history, scholar of history. I guess you could, it's really hard to be a citizen of history. Uh, <laughs> is that like time machine? Uh, anyway, okay, so as you're pondering that mystery. Um, so really, I also think this is a great opportunity that these are sort of this, this story cycle in particular of Abraham and Sarah is one that for generation upon generation, multiple cultures has been a template by which people have understood their lives. It's sort of been a place that's an invitation by New Testament authors like Paul and James to sort of step in here into the narrative of what it feels like to be Abraham and Sarah, what it feels like to practice faith. And so there's an invitation that's very real for us to try on Abraham and Sarah's lives, their times, and their decisions. And I hope you kind of embrace that even tonight. But really, like, what's the narrative arc? How do we get to Genesis 20? Um, and just really briefly, it all started in Genesis chapter 12 with these big, bold, beautiful, out-of-the-blue promises that happened to Abraham and Sarah. Uh, they were minding their own business in Ur of the Chaldeans, and all of a sudden God came out of nowhere and gave them this promise. They said, uh, you're old, you're semi-nomadic, and what I'm going to do is give you children, more offspring than you can count, and I'm going to give you a land, huge, but it's occupied by enemy forces. And I'm going to give you the very blessed presence of myself, God. And so God's telling him that he's going to give them his healing presence. And then we get to witness, up close and personal, 
um, some vignettes, some scenes of Abraham and Sarah as they walk through life, as they transpose, as they hold up uh, this huge ideal promise to the everyday gritty realities of life. And they try to make sense of this promise that is delayed. And it's really a picture that the Bible provides us of faith and what faith looks like and what faith feels like intimately. Um, And we see Abraham and Sarah practice a very real and very relatable faith. And we see how God actually um, handles faith's major successes and rather regrettable stumbles. So we get to see both of those aspects. And just a real quick survey. God was there for Abraham and Sarah when they when they actually did well, when they were faithful, when they when they were faithful with land or when they were faithful with conversations with God about his justice or about his promises. Um, they were faithful even to the point of carving his promises in their flesh, their most intimate parts in circumcision. Uh, but, you know, God was equally present and there for them when they weren't so faithful. Um, and we're going to look at this again in this passage tonight. But, you know, when the promise was 10 years delayed, and they thought this is a chance to do it yourself. And they made a do-it-yourself baby-making project with Hagar, not Sarah. And Abraham decided to marry the wrong wife, um, Hagar. Or when Abraham guffawed to God's face about the promise, and Sarah snickered behind his back about the promise. In all those occasions, uh, God was present and faithful. And he was present and he was faithful to Abraham and Sarah, even when a famine drove Abraham to lie and Sarah to prostitution in Genesis 12, which, by the way, is a scene almost identical, purposely so, to the scene we're looking at tonight in Genesis 20. So that's where we've been. That's what we've been up to. Uh, That's where we are tonight. We're tracing Abraham and Sarah's faith and God's response chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, For those of you who've been tracking with us, um, we had a guest speaker last week, but the week before we were in Genesis 18. And you might be going, why is he skipping over Genesis 19 and Sodom and Gomorrah? Um, and really, uh, I have to make editorial decisions here. And one of the editorial decisions was basically that that's about the storyline of Lot and his family and not Abraham and Sarah. And we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah in the end of chapter 18 two weeks ago. If you were there, great. If you weren't and want to talk about that, I'd love to have that conversation. Um, and by love, I mean sort of love. Okay, to have that conversation, but I am happy to have it. Okay. So we're looking at chapter 20. Uh, but before we dive into the scene, let's pray. Father, uh, I'm so thankful for the opportunity uh, to open your word, to study this passage, um, to think about um, what it feels like to be Abraham and Sarah, to think about the way that their story maps onto my story and and the story of these students here. And I pray that you would make it real and tangible, that you would make it uh, your Bible come alive, your story come alive, that we'd see ourselves in it and that we'd see it in us. And I pray that, Jesus, you'd be high and lifted up, that you'd be more beautiful and more believable to our hearts, that you'd fill our hearts with your spirit, and that you'd help us to take all the things that are on our plate and hold them up to the light uh, of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Can I begin by asking a fairly personal question? Um, I'm going to go into your childhood bedroom for a minute. Okay, so, whoa. Okay, what was hanging up on the wall of your childhood bedroom? Can you think about that for a second? Like, what poster, what picture? Um, Was someone hanging up there? Who was it? You don't have to say it out loud. Growing up, I had a poster of an NFL quarterback named John Elway. Okay, John Elway, fourth quarter comeback. That's probably why I do everything late, uh, because of his example. 
But uh, the picture I can remember, it was sort of like this um, freebie from Sports Illustrated that was sort of creased still from being inside the magazine. And I had masking taped it to my wall, my white wall in my, in my room. And it was sort of him with his arm cocked back and his lead foot forward about to throw the ball. And in the sort of old school Denver Broncos jersey, like, you know, that orange and that light blue, uh, with this sort of uh, Bronco that kind of looked like a unicorn somehow. Anyway, um, but over the course of time, probably like you, my heroes changed. It went from athletes to musicians. And then I became a Christian in college, and then I went to seminary. And my, um, my heroes changed, too. And they became, like, missionaries and pastors, because that's what I was about to do, um, which might feel weird for some of you, but for some of you, that's right where you are. Okay, in particular, um, as I got more involved with RUF and more familiar with these older songs, what we call hymns in the Christian tradition, I started noticing the songs I really liked, like Amazing Grace, um, or I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow, or Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, were all written by the same person, John Newton. Okay, and so I started doing a little homework, John Newton, and I thought, this is a really interesting guy. And I learned that he lived in the 1700s, and he made his living buying, shipping, and selling slaves. But then he experienced this terrible sea storm off the coast of West Africa, and he asked and begged God for mercy, and God revealed that mercy was found in Jesus Christ, and he became a Christian. And this dramatic conversion to Christianity led him to pen the words to Amazing Grace and to fight for um, the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. He was one of the chief voices, along with William Oberforce, to end slavery in the British Empire. Okay, so enough already to be a full-fledged hero um, in my book, especially if you think about the fact that um, I'm moving in seminary at the time and being a pastor. Uh, But then my first year here, actually, um, which was a couple years ago, I had moved from New Mexico and I was experiencing an intense amount of culture shock. I mean, you can imagine, I was 45 minutes from the border of Mexico and I went back to Davidson. Um, And then also it was just a struggle, uh, it was a hard year of ministry. And I found a lot of solace in the letters of John Newton. Like, I came upon a collection of them and read them very closely. And, you know, he didn't just sort of understand what it felt like to be me at the time. He kind of explained it. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. And it was just so helpful for me. And so he became an even greater hero. So I want you to fast forward the tape a few years ago. Just a couple months after I had discovered his letters and just gotten a lot of comfort out of that, I read... Just a few months later, the fuller story of John Newton's conversion and the song Amazing Grace. I don't know if you know this story, but you see the sea storm actually did happen and it led Newton to write Amazing Grace, but he wrote Amazing Grace before he gave up buying and selling slaves. Listen to the way that Francis Spofford puts it. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace before he gave up slaving. He wrote it under the impression that he'd already seen the stuff that he should worry about booze and licentiousness, presumably, and playing tiddlywinks on the Sabbath, and not running his slave ship with a swear box screwed to the mast. Newton thought that God's mercy, his amazing grace, was for issues like cursing and drinking too much, and it didn't even touch chaining up and selling off other human beings made equally in the image of God, just like him. This was devastating to me when I read this. My hero, my song, were not originally about sweeping social reform and human dignity, but instead merely about salty language and sometimes slacking self-control. The pin-up, pa- this is going to be very hard for you to say, the pin-up pastor poster drooped from a securely taped place on the walls of my heart. 
Do I need to repeat that? I think it's just worth it. The pinup pastor's poster drooped from its securely taped place on the walls of my heart. You give me two weeks to write a sermon, this is what you get. <laughs> okay. So my second question for you tonight is, have you ever had a hero fail again? Have you ever experienced the disappointment of seeing your parents' perfection evaporate? Your athlete idol test positive to drugs. Your mentor just blow it big time. And what about how you felt when they failed the exact same way again? For some of you, this has nothing to do with confessed Christian faith. For those of you, this has everything to do with that Christianity. And still others of you are resting smugly in self-satisfaction that you don't trust in things called heroes. Well, that's one way to never get hurt. And that's also one way to suffocate hope. So (laughs) the entire Bible, even Jewish, Muslim, and Christian history, repeatedly look to Abraham and Sarah as heroes of faith. And yet here in Genesis chapter 20, we see Abraham and Sarah fail yet again. They fail big, publicly, and seemingly inexcusably. After all, this particular failure is a repeat performance, down to the very exact same lie, she's my sister, and the same set of consequences, Sarah's sexual abduction, that we saw played out just in chapter 12 of Genesis, that time with Pharaoh and Egypt, this time with Abimelech and Philistia. But look what God does with people like Abraham and Sarah. People like us, if we're brave enough to be honest. God again shows them what can only be called amazing grace. God's mercy doesn't give Abraham and Sarah what they deserve. Sarah's sexual captivity, maybe Abraham's punishment in some way, shape, or form. But God's grace gives them what they don't deserve. Riches and healing ministry. Our pastor tonight tells the story of Abraham and Sarah's journey to a new and foreign place and the fear and the relief in the ministry that they find there. We see this narrative pattern examined in the outline, okay? Put it on your handout tonight. And it goes in three three sections. And just because I need you to make, make sure that you think I'm clever, I put all the wording is from the second stanza of Amazing Grace by John Newton. Again, if you give me two weeks to write a sermon, I just get tricky. So first, okay, in verses 1 through 13, we see the reasons for fear. Second, in verses 14 through 16, we see the reasons for relief. And third, in verses 17 through 18, we see the re- reasons for the endurance of belief. That's where I kind of like pushed it. Okay, so for the reasons for ministry, okay? So let's look together first at verses 1 through 13 and look at the reasons for fear, okay? Look, like the true story behind uh, the song Amazing Grace, verses 1 through 13 are really hard to believe, aren't they? Last we saw Abraham and Sarah in chapter 18, they had like lavishly put a banquet on for God and his two angels. They had, and then God had invited Abraham into his inmost thoughts, some of his inmost thoughts, and deliberated out loud with Abraham about his justice. What a moment. And then all of this is not even to mention chapter 18, verse 10. There the God, there, there God the Lord, promised Abraham and Sarah, quote, I will surely return to you this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. 
So after like a brief narrative break of chapter 19, we expect chapter 20, if we've never read it before, to like be full-scale baby shower. We expect like a delivery scene. You know, Abraham and Scrubs. <laughs> okay, <laughs> whatever those would look like. Um, instead, we see a repeat performance of fear. Abraham pimps out Sarah to a local ruler yet again a second time. And God has to interfere yet again to protect Sarah and the certainty of his future offspring's paternity. But aside from their shock, verses 1 through 13 describe in exquisite detail what fear looks like. And they show us how reasonable fear actually seems. So we're going to see this reasonableness in the sort of logical sequence of the fear in this passage. We see fearful circumstances, fearful motives, and a fearful strategy. Okay, I'll briefly do this and apply it as I go. So verses 1 through 2 tell us that Abraham and Sarah are leaving the familiar comforts of the Oaks of Mamre, and, which is the there of, this, of these verses, and they go to the South Negev. Okay, the South Negev is the extreme southern desert wilderness. This is a place with very little food, very little water, and Abraham at this point has lots of people and lots of animals, so it's pretty stressful. They find this pasture land, somehow between this oasis, which is what Kadesh is, and the walls of an Egyptian fortress in the northernmost part of the Egyptian territory, which is what Shur refers to. Okay? But it's also already occupied by a Philistine king, Abimelech, which means son of a king. Very, very original. So verse 11, or even father of a king, verse 11 tells us that Abraham looked around at Gerar and thought to himself, there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. That is, Abraham looks around him, looks at this wild place in the middle of nowhere, and he thinks to himself, they don't even know that stealing and murder are bad. They're not immoral, they're amoral. And although God has promised just a few chapters earlier to be his shield and protect him, given the circumstances, it seems rather reasonable for Abraham to fear. And so the question becomes, what are some circumstances in our lives that seem reasonable to fear about? Is it getting that internship? Or just a job? Or getting the grades to get into grad school? Or does it seem reasonable to fear that you're going to be left behind relationally in life? Okay, You're never going to have great friends. Or you'll never meet that guy or girl who's marriage material, and you'll be single with cats. Lots of cats. <laughs> More broadly speaking, what feels like a new, hard, difficult situation? What's your southern Negeb right now? But watch how that fearful scenario of the south Negeb spins into Abraham questioning the motives of God for him and Sarah. Okay, It's subtle like it is for us, but look at verse 13. Abraham says, When God caused me to wander from my father's house. <laughs> All of a sudden, Abraham's lips speak the overflow of his heart. God's wonderful promise to give him a child, to give him a land, to give him his very presence is a fool's errand. It is a wild goose chase for 25 years. They are caused to wonder, not called to bigger and better things. Again, do we feel this sometimes in our lives? Maybe at our time at Davidson. If our lips spoke spontaneously what's stewing in our hearts, what would they say? What would they say God is up to in our lives right now? Do we feel called to be here on campus to do good? 
for our good and others' good. Is even this hour feel like a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing? Or does it feel like God is in the business of crossing our very fair designs for our very fair future right now? The circumstances of fear, the South Negev, the motive for fear, God's assumed carelessness, reasonably leads to a scheme. Abraham and Sarah's scheme is laid out in verse 2. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, said of Sarah's wife, she's my sister. And guess what happens? Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Which, by the way, can we just take like a pause? She's really old. <laughs> like 97. Okay, just pause. Okay, she must be like supernaturally um, to sit there and take her for the harem. Anyway, <laughs> and when Abraham defends his lie, okay, and the harm it has done, he tells Abimelech that Sarah is his half-sister, verse 12. And he actually emotionally extorted her. He demanded that Sarah give him this kindness. What kind of line is that? To say that they're siblings and to sell herself into sexual slavery at every place to which we come, verse 13. Imagine. Okay, like this repeated premeditated strategy is like so hard to believe. It's so hard for me to believe that they would do this again. Let alone one time. The father and mother of the Christian faith. These are the people that are talked about over and over again in the New Testament as being faithful people. And it's probably the hardest for us to apply to ourselves and our situation, even compared to the circumstances and even the motives of fear. And here's, here's my contention. It's because we so desperately want other people, we so de- desperately want ourselves to be perfect, to never evidence a weakness, to never let on that we fail more than once in the same way. I can't get over this blog post, okay? It's by a guy named Dan Phillips. And the name of it's called Porn and the Paper Pastor, okay? Dan Phillips is suggesting that the allure of pornography is not just about sex, okay? Pornography is primarily about the desire for unreal perfection. That's the appeal, is it desire for unreal effect, uh, perfection. He writes it this way. The women in the pictures never had bad days. They were never crabby and demanding. They were never disrespectful and demeaning. No mood swings. They always suited his mood, his needs, his wants. They were unreal. These women don't exist in the real world. They may not even look like their pictures, thanks to computer wizardry. Nobody can compete with a fantasy. Phil's blog post goes on to talk about how this pornographic desire for picture-perfect perfectionism affects all of our relationships with real people, okay, like Abraham and Sarah and us, all real people who do not possess perfect bodies, who do not possess perfect moods, perfect social skills, perfect time management, perfect thoughts. Why? Because we're real flesh and blood human beings. I mean, just think what happens when we finally get close enough to somebody that we drop the stylized Instagram version of ourselves and something that sounds like Yik Yak comes out, right? (laughs) In the words of another writer, Jonathan Franzen, you hear something come out of your mouth, things that shatter your self-image as a fair, kind, cool, attractive, in control, funny, and likable person. And in this real and imperfect failure, suddenly you have a choice when that happens, right? How do I deal with that flawed part of me? How do I deal with those parts of people that come out in conversations like that? 
Does the uncool he or the unattractive she get to be known and loved too? Or will I hide from myself? Will I hide from other people? And will I hide from reality? Thankfully, since the beginning of time, and even in this passage, God pursues us in our hiding places. Just look at the way that God moves to Abimelech, moves Abimelech to confront Abraham with the full weight of his fearful strategy in verses 9 through 10. <laughs> He's indignant. What have you done to us? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. I, I feel like that must be the sanitized version. <laughs> okay? um, this confrontation forces Abraham to confess out loud real and embarrassing fears, the verses that we just unpacked in verses 11 through 13. But notice that God doesn't stop there, okay? This is so amazing. He doesn't stop with Abraham with us in our full humanity. In verses 14 through 16, God gives us reasons for relief in our full humanity. We see this in verses 14 through 16. Point two, by the way. Following around the handout, okay? Simply put, these verses show us God's grace and how it relieves our fears, okay? Look, after Abimelech's like heated words and sort of like Abraham's half apology slash confession, right? Well, she's kind of my sister. Um, you know, I, okay. Can I take another time out? That's probably why they're having infertility issues. Okay. So second part. Okay. I just, just kind of have to, I feel like we have to do the math. Okay. So look, he's got this whole Abimelech's heated words, Abraham's half-hearted confession. We fully and rightly expect Abimelech to do something like punishing to Abraham, right? Like, to put Abraham and Sarah's lives in jeopardy, to like pick up Abraham at least and hold him over something steep incline and shake his ankles and go, you're a dead man. You know who told me that? God last night, <laughs> okay? This is what it feels like, Abraham, okay? And maybe just to drop him or at least to scare him because you know what? That would be justice, wouldn't it? Giving him what he deserved or giving them what they deserved, right? Or maybe you caught the drift that Abraham or Abimelech is like this good king. He's got integrity of heart. And, that, and he'll show Abraham and Sarah mercy. Abimelech will calmly, coolly let go of Abraham's shirt, let him slide down the wall that he's pressed him against, okay, smooth out the wrinkles, and say, hey, um, I'm going to refrain from hurting you, collect your things, get out of Gerar, and never come back. Okay, That would be mercy. Right? You know, not giving Abraham and Sarah what they deserve. But verse 14 tells us Abimelech did something very different. What does he do? He gives Abraham sheep and oxen and male and female servants. In addition to returning Sarah, his wife, and securing Abraham's paternity of the future child. Then it gets even better. Verse 15, Abimelech gives Abraham and Sarah unlimited grazing rights to his land. Can you imagine? Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And to top it all off, in addition to livestock, laborers, and lots of land, verse 16 shows Abimelech publicly declaring Sarah's sexual purity and then proving it by this huge gift, a thousand silver pieces. That's 25 pounds of money. 25 pounds of money. That's more than a lifetime of wages for a manual worker in the ancient Near East. And in Jesus, God gives us this grace, this over-the-top, undeserved gift. Because you know what Abimelech does to Abraham? Okay? 
he does not give them what they deserve. <laughs> okay? He doesn't give them justice. He doesn't give them mercy. He gives them grace. And Jesus, God, gives us this grace, this gift to He relieves our future fears, too. The spoken and unspoken fears, the enacted and just fretted over thing that we worry about in the future. And look, this is my best definition of grace. This is my, like, Scott, this is what I got, okay? I, I, I kind of put this together, so take it or leave it, okay? Grace is us punching God in the nose because we don't trust him. And then God giving us a billion dollars in a billion ways because he likes Jesus and we're with Jesus. Okay? Grace is God is us punching God in the nose because we don't trust him and then God giving us a billion dollars in a billion ways because he likes Jesus an awful lot and we're with Jesus. That's grace. Okay? In our passage Genesis 20 verses 14 through 16 are pains to tell us that we are likely to do the same things in the same way. But God does not run out of patience. God does not run out of kindness. God does not run out of grace. His promise to protect us extends even to the promise to protect us from ourselves. I can't say it any better than 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. Here's how he describes God's grace for repeat offenders. Like me. If Christ were only a cistern, we might soon exhaust his fullness. But who can drain a fountain? Myriads of spirits have drawn their supplies from him. And not one, not one spirit has murmured at the scantiness of his resources. Look, some application. If you've begun to understand the idea of grace, you'll start to feel very embarrassed. Okay? Here's what some of you are embarrassed about. Some of you are embarrassed that you and I need Mary's real-life boy and God's eternal son, Jesus. Some of us are embarrassed that you and I are not picture-perfect, skillfully airbrushed, provocatively posed without bulge or spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. People. That like Abraham and Sarah, we get into trouble. We get tied up. We get twisted inside and outside. And we need God to come and find us where we're hiding. And finally, if we begin to understand God's grace, we start to get embarrassed for God. This is the most radical part. We start to get embarrassed for God. For Jesus, who lived like a clown to rescue a clown like me. Who died like a crook to rescue a crook like me. Jesus, born with the livestock, living as a laborer without land, who gets betrayed for a mere 30 pieces of silver. In order to give us, in our habitual imperfection, 1,000 pieces of perfect peace and perfect purity. But God's grace doesn't relieve our fears for our own good merely. It restores us to calling of doing other people good, giving us reasons for ministry and the endurance of belief. Point three, verses 17 through 18. We're bringing it home. Okay? In the original words of God's calling to Abraham and Sarah, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and God invites them to this promise. I will bless you who bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But Abraham and Sarah's behavior towards Abimelech is anything but a blessing. They lie to Abimelech. They nearly cause his death. And then in verse 13, it's really interesting. It's hidden in the Hebrew. Okay? Abraham actually hides the identity of God who's giving the promises to bless the nations. He calls him Elohim. And uses that's the plural for gods. 
Okay? So he says, the gods have caused me to wonder. He's, and the cause me to wonder is a plural verb. He's hidden the identity of God. We would rightly think that God was finished trying to empower Abraham to be his vessel. He was done with this kind of conduit for blessing, for life, for a metaphysical balm for humankind. He was just finished. But to quote Mumford and Sons, when it seems like all my bridges have been burnt, but you say that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with every start. God's grace welcomes Abraham and, and Sarah to restart their mission, to bless the nations through commanding Abimelech, to ask Abraham for prayer in verse 7, and then in verses 17 through 18, God uses Abraham, the guy who just lied, the guy who just sent his wife into sexual slavery to restore life, fertility, and children to the house of Abraham. He honors, or to Abimelech, he honors that prayer that much by that guy. And God's grace welcomes us to endure in our belief and to do ministry again after that failure that you can't shake and that I can't shake, that I find myself committing over and over and over again. God's grace is bigger and better than that failure. In his grace, God chooses to use us in all of our frailty and all of our double faults to love others just like he loves us. God chooses to use us, us, okay, to honor and love unlovely weaknesses, to give them chance after chance at a first impression, to welcome every single loving restart. God treasures wounded healers. (laughs) He treasures failed heroes. He treasures Abraham and Sarah and people like us. And this brings me back to my failed hero, John Newton. Okay? Although Amazing Grace was written before Newton gave up slave trading for good, Jesse Norman, a famous African-American soprano singer, suggests that the tune for the song Amazing Grace actually came from West Africa, from the very slaves that he was trading. And so I love the way that Cornelius Plantinga puts it, In God's amazing grace, a slave song became a freedom song. What's amazing about God's grace is it not just flows to undeserving people like Newton or Abraham or you and me. Okay, I added that part. Not just that it's so lavish and abundant. What's so amazing about God's grace is that it can get through our armor and find our hearts. That's what he means. What's so amazing about God's grace is that a song that Newton attended to speak about a few bad personal habits has done so much more in God's hands. Okay? Think about the intentions of God for a second. He used it to proclaim rescue, literal and spiritual rescue, to hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, for centuries all across the world. When Newton was talking about swearing, that's God. That's his grace. (laughs) Amazing grace that led to the actual abolition of slavery in the British Empire. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Here's the thought that I want to leave you with. And I want you to sort of, John Newton's John Newton, and I'm me, and you're you, okay? Um, but I want to say there's a comparison. And here's what I want, to, I want you to think about. I can only imagine the sound that the love we imperfectly intend has already begun to perfectly sing in the wide expanse of heaven. Okay, I'm going to say it again. 
I can only imagine the sound of the love that we imperfectly intend right here, right now, that has already begun to perfectly sing in the wide expanse of heaven. We have no idea of the consequences of our actions of love in God's hands. <laughs> you were talking about swearing, and he was talking about freeing a whole race of people. You were talking about doing something small, a courtesy, and he's going to use it to change the entire complexion of, of the human race. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for your mercy. I'm thankful for your justice. It's just hard to believe. It's hard to believe that you would use people like Abraham and Sarah, that you would use people like me, like John Newton, like any human being on the planet. Um, Thank you for that. And I pray that you'd help us to, to rest in that, to trust that you care about ministry and ministers and you care about your people, and you want them to rest from their fears. You want to relieve their fears. Jesus, help us. Meet us where we are. In your name. Amen.